You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll learn about tsunamis. Scientists have mapped the worst case scenario for how a tsunami might affect the region, from right along the ocean to within the bay. It'd be about 30 foot elevation it would get up to. So the first several, three, three or four blocks of ocean beach could be in the tsunami hazard area. And as it then goes around towards the Golden Gate, it starts to dissipate. It, it starts to go down to probably about eight to 10 feet as it enters through the Golden Gate and then into the Marina District. And then when it wraps around into, you know, the Market Street area and North Beach, we see the flooding could be, you know, going up to about a 10 foot elevation. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Not only does the California Geological Survey have a tsunami program, it creates maps of where scientists expect a really serious tsunami would affect, and it redraws these regularly to include the latest information. A new map has recently come out, and the areas that could experience flooding in what you might call a worst-case scenario have actually expanded from the last map. For example, the San Francisco Zoo is now in a tsunami evacuation zone. Rick Wilson is a senior engineering geologist with the California Geological Survey, and he's the manager of the tsunami program there. We talked about some tsunami basics that I didn't know, and how and why these maps are made. Let's start with some basic context here. How often and why do tsunami maps get updated? Yeah, well, my organization, the California Geological Survey, we're always looking at tsunami events and new tsunami sources and analyzation techniques to ensure that the coastal communities are safe from tsunami hazards. So we work with the California Office of Emergency Services uh, and other partners to develop tsunami hazard maps for evacuation planning. And then these maps are then used at a local level for their evacuation and response planning. Basically, these maps are updated about every 10 years. The National Tsunami Hazard Mitigation Program recommends this. Uh, It's been 12 years for us. We were were put back a little bit by the the, uh, pandemic and, uh, but that's okay. You know, the maps that we have out there right now are still pretty good. Just these new maps have looked at a lot more detailed information and information we learned from events over the last 10 years, like the 2011 Japan tsunami, which Mm -hmm. was devastating in Japan. Uh, But it also caused $100 million worth of damage to 27 harbors in California. So it's important for us to take notes on that and make improvements to our mapping process. And what we've seen is the tsunami hazard could be larger than what we had seen back in 2009 when these maps were created uh, the last time. So it's, it's a great opportunity. It's an important opportunity for us to go and update these maps so that we're making the public safe. How do you make a map like this? Like, how do you figure out mm, this block's probably going to flood, this one not so much? Well, it all starts with the science. It, it starts with understanding what the different sources are that could impact the central coast, especially the San Francisco Bay Area. We're doing this for the entire coast, but every location has a unique signature when it comes to tsunamis. Every tsunami is different. So we need to really focus in on modeling specific sources that will influence particular parts of the coastline. So we looked at a suite of different potential tsunami sources, kind of worst case scenarios. 
and then evaluated that. We also integrated in one of these lessons learned from 2011, which was to look beyond just your historic record. You know, our record goes back about 200 years, but we now have the tools to look at what a thousand year event might look like. And that would be the equivalent of about a 5% chance of happening in a 50 year period. So we felt that that was a good baseline to use for our sources. 5%? Under- that's more than I want. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. Um, so basically, we look at those tsunami sources. We integrate these tsunami sources into our numerical models. We run models along the coast, which show where the flooding will go, kind of you know the nooks and crannies of the coastline and seeing where that flooding will go. We then go out and check the, the model results and then update the maps based on what we're seeing in the field and then meeting with locals. And one of those other types of uh, you know, lessons learned from Japan was that we needed to make the maps simple. Instead of using our, our kind of crooked line to show where the, the tsunami might flood, we extended that line knowing that there's some errors and some uncertainties in the modeling. We extended them to like the next block so that they're much more easy for uh, emergency managers and the public to understand what areas could flood and what areas are hazardous. Mm-hmm. When you say you go out into the field, what do you collect out in the field? What, you know, what are you doing out there? Are you measuring inclines, distance, yeah. how far a wave went before? Right, right. So uh, you're right on with that. Uh, we, we go out, we start at the coast, you know, right along the beach, and we kind of survey what could happen from that certain flood level coming on shore to make sure that the modeling is really showing what we're, we're seeing in the field. That validation is, is really important because we know that there are levees and seawalls and other features that may influence where the flooding goes. Mm-hmm. And we may not see that in the model. So we wanna make sure we capture that when we're in the field. Yeah. This is maybe kind of a big question, but what does it mean that a larger area than before is likely to be affected by a worst-case tsunami if one occurs? I mean, my immediate thought is climate change. Is this climate change? No. Uh, you know, despite what a lot of people think, and this this is a good point to really make, is that mm-hmm. tsunamis, well, tsunamis aren't related specifically to climate change. Tsunamis are created by undersea earthquakes, undersea uh, uh, landslides. And that's what generates a tsunami. Now, sea level rise will increase the size of the coastline's flood level, uh, you know, on the beaches. But we don't incorporate sea level rise into our modeling because we know that in 10 years we're going to be updating them again. And so we mm. want to kind of base it off what the sea level is now. Mm. Having, having said that, like for the city of San Francisco, um, one of the areas that has a higher hazard is the Market Street area and the, the North Beach area. And we see the, the flooding could go further inland. And a lot of these mimic the flooding you might see in the new uh, sea level rise maps. Hmm. So any mitigation, you know, any seawall or anything that's, that's developed to prevent the sea level rise will also help prevent and, and kind of mitigate some of the tsunami hazards. So that's kind of a positive story that, that people should understand is that sometimes when you look at sea level rise and what it could impact. If you address that, you can also address tsunami hazards at the same time. Hmm. Okay. Let's get some tsunami basics 
I had this idea in my head that a tsunami is one gargantuan wave hmm. that comes on like a wall and it just crashes into the shore and then it's over. And that is wrong from what I see on SF-72, which is the city's emergency preparedness site. How long does a tsunami last? What does it look and behave like? So, yeah, tsunamis are tricky. You know, everyone, every new tsunami teaches us a new lesson. But for the most part, the, the imagination of the public is sometimes influenced by, you know, uh, movies and other yeah. things. And or what they see in Japan, you know, some of the things that mm. we saw, you know, the videos we saw in Japan were, were pretty amazing, really, you know, large tsunamis. The good news is for the California Central Coast is we don't have that same type of source right offshore uh, that the Japanese had. They had a tsunami that could create a, a wave that would come on shore to like 50 feet uh, and then flood miles inland. And mm -hmm. we don't have that type of source right offshore. We have the San Andreas Fault, but that particular fault moves laterally. It moves north-south and it doesn't move up and down. The up and down motion on the faults is really what causes the tsunami. Mm -hmm. So, although there's a large earthquake hazard, there, there's a low uh, tsunami hazard from a San Andreas event. So, you have this, this tsunami that comes onshore. Uh, it, it could vary along the coast, you know, it could be 10 to 20 feet along the coast, and it could run up to about a 30-foot elevation on land. Because tsunamis are long waves, long wavelengths, they, they basically uh, are very long in how the water builds up compared to what we see from wind waves, which, you know, they basically come on shore, break in about 20 seconds, and then go offshore. Well, tsunamis last about 20 minutes. Wow. So you don't see a breaking wave typically with a tsunami. You see it basically as a, as a flood, a, a surge. And it's, it's like the, the earth is being tipped on shore, if you will, and the water's just pouring on shore for 20 minutes and then it's pouring offshore for 20 minutes. Wow. And that's what these extreme events look like. It's just a, a constant flood that's kind of being pushed from behind by the next tsunami wave. Now these, these waves come in groups. They, like with wind waves, tsunamis will have a train of maybe anywhere from 10 to 30 tsunami waves behind it. And they'll, they'll typically dissipate as they go. But that first several hours, like the first five hours of the tsunami are the most important. That's where we see the biggest waves. Uh, it's important for people to know that when the first wave arrives, that's not gonna typically be the biggest wave. So you need to not mm. just go by on what you see, it's, it's you go by what you hear from officials, you know, to, to, to stay safe, get out of the way of it and uh, stay there for a period of time, stay, out, stay safe for a period of time because uh, these multiple waves could last anywhere from 10 hours to 20 hours. Oh my God. I mean, then I think it's relevant to mention at this point um, that when we say stay safe, we don't have to, you know, like f travel for miles to be able to get out of these these flooding areas or these affected areas, even in a worst case scenario. I mean, you know, it's a hilly city, but also in most of the Bay Area, you don't have to go too far to get to safety, right? That is a great point. Um, that's a, probably the biggest take home message we want people to know is that not only do you not have to go very far to get out of the way of, of tsunamis, but people that typically get in trouble because they go to see the tsunami. We want people to what? get out of the way of the tsunami. No. <laughs> so, so we want people, you know, and like you said, it, it sometimes is only a number of blocks uh, inland. The other good news is that this kind of worst case scenario that we're modeling that represents the thousand year event, if you will, and this extreme event, is a magnitude 9.3 earthquake off of Alaska and Aleutian Islands area. That seems to be like the, the hub for 
some of the larger tsunamis that affect California's coast outside of the North Coast, which has one of these larger faults just offshore. It's called the Cascadia subduction zone. But, but Alaska and Aleutians, when there's an earthquake, a big earthquake there, it sends a tsunami across the ocean. It takes five hours to get to the Bay Area. So that five hours is just, you know, priceless. You know, you, you have five hours to evacuate. You don't have to go that far. You don't have to drive 100 miles inland. All you have to do is just, you know, we just recommend people go to the website, uh, tsunami.ca.gov, and then they can see the maps themselves and see where the hazard areas are, because every area is a little different than, than the other area. And with, they need to understand what their particular area's uh, hazard is and focus on that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if you said this already, but in this worst case scenario that these maps look at, um, how tall would these waves be? Yeah, so there's there's two different ways to look at a tsunami. One is what it will it look like coming on shore, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what we basically call the amplitude of the tsunami, the wave height mm-hmm. as it comes on shore. And then it what it does is once it gets on shore, the water pushes from behind and it ramps up, if you will, and that's called run up, tsunami run up. So where it runs up to a certain elevation, that's the that's your flood area, is from that elevation down towards the coast. So when we did our modeling, I'll just focus on the city of San Francisco, we saw that at the coast, the tsunami could be about 15 to 20 feet high from an extreme event, from you know this very extreme event that only happens less than 1% of the time. And it'd be about 30 foot elevation it would get up to. So the first several, three, three or four blocks of ocean beach could be in the tsunami hazard area. And as it then goes around towards the Golden Gate, it starts to dissipate. It, it starts to go down to probably about 10 to uh, 8 to 10 feet as it enters through the Golden Gate and then into the Marina District. So when it gets to the Marina District, it could it'd be by like about 8 to 10 feet at the waterfront, but then it could ramp up to about a 15-foot elevation. So we see a number of blocks in that area. It's very low-lying, so we see a number of blocks potentially flooding. And then when it wraps around into, you know, the Market Street area and North Beach, we see the flooding could be, you know, going up to about a 10 foot elevation. The, you know, the good news is it's, it's only 10 feet of elevation of, of flooding. But unfortunately, a lot of those areas are so low lying mm-hmm. that they become prone to flooding. And that's, that's where uh, both the, the, the tsunami source itself as well as the elevation on lands make it a big difference on where that flooding goes. Yep. And I do want to talk about some of the areas that might flood in this worst case scenario. But but first, a brief diversion into, you know, what other tsunamis might look like. There's this great KQED exploration of tsunamis that reveals that there have actually been more than 70 tsunamis in the Bay Area since 1854. But they just don't, they aren't necessarily these worst case scenarios. Um, That includes the 2011 tsunami that you mentioned that hit Japan really hard. It hit California. That was about 10 hours later, and it was a little over a foot high, according to this report, and it still caused millions of dollars of damage. So how big does the tsunami need to be to have, you know, a measurable effect? Is, is there a size threshold for a tsunami to show up to have an impact? Yeah, we, there, there definitely a lot of study has been done on this to, to determine what impacts uh, different size tsunamis will have. And typically what we see is when you have a tsunami that's potentially like a one foot above the normal conditions, that's where we have a uh, kind of a uh, threshold for what's called a tsunami advisory. And so from the warning center, they'll say there's a tsunami advisory when it gets between one and three feet. 
Now, we don't expect inundation to occur during these types of events. There may be damage to harbors inside bays hmm. because what happens is when you get this 20 minutes surging coming in and 20 minutes surging going out, you get really strong currents developing inside those harbors. And that those currents are what do the damage. And so we saw damage in Berkeley. We saw damage in San Francisco, parts of the, the smaller boat basins from this 2011 event. Even up in Sausalito, we saw some, some damage to some of those areas. So small tsunamis can do damage in the water, um, but they typically won't do damage on land. So once it gets above three feet, that's what's called a tsunami warning. And when we're in a tsunami warning, that's where we think the potential for flooding on, on land could occur. And then people that are on land could be susceptible to, to that flooding. I'm speaking with Rick Wilson, manager of the Tsunami Program and a senior engineering geologist at the California Geological Survey. What are some of the signs that a tsunami might happen? I mean, you know, in the Bay Area, we'll probably have emergency warning, the emergency alert system and all these things. So aside from man-made warning signs, are there natural warning signs of a tsunami? And, and do they also occur when the tsunami is not that big? Yeah, as you pointed out, there are two different types of tsunamis. You know, this this local threat, which occurs and it, it takes about 10 minutes to get on shore sometimes. And then this distant source of threat where we're going to get an official message on what to do. And so these local source threats, which we don't think that the Bay Area really faces too much of these local sources, except for on the outer coast part of the Bay. Your, your basic warning signs, they're, they're usually related to earthquakes. So if you feel the ground shaking and you're on the beach or you're in one of these areas, uh, a tsunami could be generated. Uh, it could, you know, a large earthquake on the San Andreas Fault could trigger a landslide, a local landslide, which could impact areas of the coastline uh, hmm. with a tsunami. The other, the other types of things we see is that about 50% of the time you'll see uh, uh, a surge, kind of going the, the surge going out along the beach. And a lot of people have mistaken that for a good opportunity to go capture fish <laughs> that are no. flopping around on the beach. But <laughs> when that water goes out, that's your sign that a tsunami has probably been generated. That's kind of the, in your wavelength of your tsunami, that's your drop down kind of part of the wave. That's the lower part of the wave that's, that's occurring. And so the water is drawing out away from the beach and then it'll come back just a lot, a lot stronger onto the beach after that in, in those 20 minute periods of time. So those are two of the probably biggest uh, natural warning signs that people can, can kind of count on to indicate that a tsunami might be on their way. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the concept of likelihood and how likely it is that there will be, say, you know, a, a regionally sourced or locally sourced tsunami and then the likelihood of one that is that originates farther away? I mean, I think that living in California, people think about the likelihood of earthquakes in this sort of strange, difficult to process way of like, yes, you know, we're due for another earthquake, for another big one, but it could happen anytime in the next, you know, 100 years or 100 years ago. That's very hard for me to process. And when I read about tsunamis and that the likelihood of this worst case scenario is low, can you explain that in terms that are a little bit, you know, easier to grok? So... As with most natural hazards, you know, they're, they're kind of unpredictable. As scientists, we study and study and study, and we sometimes are thrown for loops when uh, something that happens doesn't match what our preconceived notions were. So 
we're always learning from these events. And so it's kind of tricky. With like earthquakes, you know, we see that stress builds up on the faults over a period of time. That stress, if it isn't released in an earthquake, will continue to build until it, it kind of goes beyond its point of, of being able to, to hold the friction and then it'll fail and that causes the next earthquake. So we see a lot of these faults have earthquakes every hundred years or so. Tsunamis, we're, we're looking at faults across all the ocean. So it's even harder to predict mm. what we're going to see here. However, we have worked with some experts in the field on trying to develop this idea of what's called a probabilistic analysis. So we're, we're looking at what's the probability of a certain size tsunami happening along our coast. And that's where we went to that thousand year kind of event as a baseline. We wanted to make sure that at the very least our coast was protected against that thousand year event. So a thousand year event's hard to, to grasp. It's, it's really something that's, that's not easy because it seems like, well, I don't have to worry about it. It's a thousand years. It, it'll never, you know, what are the chances of this happening? However, when you think about it in statistics, thousand years also equals a 5% chance in 50 years. So when you think about your lifetime in a, in a residence, you know, 50 year period of time, there's about a 5% chance you might see something this size happen over a 50 year period of time. Hmm. Now, the only thing is we, you know, we plan for these worst case scenarios because we want to make sure that every other tsunami is captured by that same flood area. Yeah. And we want to make sure that for any tsunami, people, if they get out of the zone for the worst case, will be safe from any tsunami. And that's why we, we map that worst case scenario. And as I said, 99% of the time, we're going to get a smaller one. Just last week, we had a magnitude 8.2 earthquake off the uh, coast of Alaska, and that caused a very small tsunami in California, you know, on the order of maybe 10 to 15 inches. Mm -hmm. um, it was enough to be registered on the tide gauges, but a lot of the harbors said they didn't see it. So that was good news. But they happen a lot. You know, they, they happen a lot, but they, they, you, we just don't see them very often. Uh, there have been 150 tsunamis that have affected California's coast over the last 200 years. So they're not as something that we have to worry about all the time, but, but the probability of a large one happening that affects us is really low. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's good to keep track of that to make sure that, you know, you are prepared for that worst case so that when it doesn't happen, you're, you're still prepared. Okay, I also want to talk about some of the specific areas that might flood and, and how those might affect us. I mean, looking at San Francisco, there's obviously a lot of affected areas along the waterfront. Uh, one place that looks really bad to me is Treasure Island, because nothing stays unaffected there at all. And Treasure Island doesn't have good transit, doesn't have even a lot of sort of ingress and egress options. It's kind of got this one little like connector to Yerba Buena Island and out. Mm -hmm. Is there a concern about evacu evacuation there? There's always a concern where there's an isolated area like that. And as you pointed out, there's, there's one place of egress. So, you know, that's something that the city has been working on to, to make sure that people understand that. But the good news is that most people, you know, as I said, you know, this worst case that we're potentially going to see and the potential for flooding at that location is kind of small. However, the extreme event does show that it could flood that area. Mm -hmm. um, but it is good that most people in that, or all people in that area, should be able to get to safety on Yerba Buena Island, just up that road. Yeah. And the city is making plans for how to handle those people. 
uh, whether it's, you know, continuing to have them evacuate on the bridge or just, you know, stay in place, shelter in that location, uh, set up camps at that particular location on Yerba Buena to, to handle the people that would be on Treasure Island. So mm. I know the city is working on that. It's just good that people know if that area could potentially flood. I know they're also developing some seawalls for, for that area because of the sea level rise issue. Mm-hmm. And, and that'll help prevent most tsunamis from, from flooding that area, too. Mm-hmm. The other thing I noticed is airports. We have two airports in the Bay Area that are basically on the water. Um, I think SFO would probably be pretty affected. And Oakland International looks like it would be completely flooded um, in the event of a worst case scenario. Is that a would that cause a potential problem if there's two regional international airports that are underwater at the same time? <laughs> you know, I, I can't speak for you know the local agencies on how they they handle this. You know, our purpose is is primarily to to identify where the hazard exists, and that makes their planning efforts a lot easier to go forward with. Right. And so we have worked with both airports, um, and uh, you know we we did get a tour of SFO and creating the maps uh, down in San Mateo County. Yeah, there's some parts of it that could flood some parts of the tarmac, uh, but for you know a lot of their facilities, they're, they're, they're mostly safe from tsunami flooding mm. from extreme events. The mm. tsunami gets to about you know maybe six to seven feet in that area, and uh, most of that area is elevated above that level. For Oakland Airport, there's, it's, the hazard's a little higher there, uh, and so we see that that area could flood a little bit more. Um, but, you know, the purpose is really kind of identifying the hazard and making a good plan to, to not only handle, you know, where air traffic would go, uh, you know, perhaps they would, they would all go down to, to San Jose or some other location redirected uh, in an emergency. But we really want to make sure the people on the ground know that, you know, they have a certain potential risk and that, you know, that they, they should get out of the way when, when it's uh, forecasted that a tsunami is on its way for those areas. Mm-hmm. My first instinct looking at these maps was to check for places where people live that might be affected. And there are more blocks of residential areas that are predicted to flood in these maps than in the 2009 ones. Yeah. But what about industrial areas? I mean, there are some of those too. And it seems like having, say, a water treatment plant or something flood might be bad for a number of reasons. Are there concerns along those lines? Uh I think the the agencies that work with uh, those those types of uh, industrial facilities certainly we've been working with them. Uh, we've been working with the Coastal Commission on a lot of these these projects, a lot of these mapping processes, and so they're they're well aware of the hazard too. As I said, you know the key thing is that in our mapping, uh, our primary purpose is just to put out there what that risk is, and it can be used for you know emergency response. It can be used for planning for land use and, you know, knowing in some cases, you know, they may be able to shut down the plant early uh, and prevent some of the, the issues with the plants if they exist in those areas. You know, those, the good news is there is this time period kind of for people, not only when they evacuate, but also when they, you know, have to shut down their facilities uh, to make sure that fewer, less contamination happens. So it's always mm-hmm. good Identifying that hazard and making sure that they have a plan that matches that hazard is is ideal. And I, I think that's what most of these uh, groups are working on now, knowing that what the hazard level is. Yeah. 
Yeah, it sounds like uh, you are working with a lot of different agencies and organizations to, you know, put these maps to use. They are also available to the public. There's this publicly accessible interactive map. I have already made a couple of mistakes interpreting this map. Um, so I want to ask you, is there any, are there any main takeaways you would like the public to have from this map? And are there any misconceptions or any wrong takeaways that you would like to prevent? <laughs> I think what we really want people to know is we don't want to scare people. You know, we, we, we know that the, the California coast is a great place to live. You know, the, along the waterfront is, is ideal to live in California. It's what makes California special. This is just another potential hazard to worry about. But at the same time, the, the worry should, should go to hope because I think by identifying the hazard, if you live, work, visit these areas, knowing what your hazard level is, knowing where to go, in case there is a tsunami that's generated, can save your life, can save the life of your family, your friends. We really want people not to take the message away that you know that it, it, it's doom and gloom. And we want to take them. We want to make sure they understand that there's a positive message of taking action, and they can save themselves. Great, Rick. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Rick Wilson, a senior engineering geologist who manages the tsunami program at the California Geological Survey. You can find those tsunami maps at conservation.ca.gov. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Before I let you go today... At the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate, or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use, or leave us a review. It really does help. So thank you. <laughs>